We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, that traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. We'd also like to take a moment today in recognition of Black History Month. This month, you can check out Five Artists, One Love at the Windspear on February 5th, or you can visit the EPL Black History webpage at any time of the year um, to find resources and information on the contributions that Black people have made and continue to make in the world. Also, keep your eyes peeled this month for local events organized here at McEwen or through the National Black Coalition Society of Canada's website. You can find links for all of those in the episode description. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host Brittany Eklund. Today's episode will take a peek behind the screen to take a look at computer vision and we'll look at some projects where computer science and mathematics meet medical imaging. Today we are here with Dana Kobsash, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Computer Science at McEwen University, where she teaches coursework in machine learning, computer graphics, and algorithms. Dr. Kobsash's areas of expertise are centered around imaging and computer vision, with particular interest in mathematical models for medical image processing. She also has experience and interest in methods for medical image segmentation, registration, and noise reduction. So... Um, let's start off. If you could just, Dana, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what attracted you to a career in mathematics and computer science. I always loved mathematics. I, um, I grew up in Romania, so that's where I did my undergrad. And at that time, it was the, we didn't have a separate mathematics. It was like a joint program, mathematics and computer science. So... From my understanding, part of computer science is computer vision, and that's something you actually have a large body of research in. So can you explain to us uh, what exactly is computer vision? So computer vision is the science of imaging. So we study uh, both 2D and 3D images. We study the imaging process, like the projection process. Um, We study image filtering, So everything related to images. Yeah, I guess like what I'm trying to get at is um, like for people that are not familiar with like computer vision or computer science, could you give us some examples of like kinds of maybe technologies or ways in which computer vision is used or things that you study that like would help us understand a little bit more about the mathematics involved? So originally computer vision was... um a very mathematical field. Now, recently, for the last, since all the deep learning explosion, it merged with machine learning. So I think it's a little bit hard to detangle now computer vision from machine learning because a lot of machine learning algorithms are used in computer so vision. So like AI? Yeah. Okay. So basically, everything you have on your phone is computer vision, like face recognition, face detection, uh, all the the even the focus the the google the way um sorry the apple phone works you know that it blurs the background that's computer vision uh everything that you see it it has some part of computer vision in okay. it okay and that's really cool because i had no idea like i was kind of reading about computer vision and i was like ai 
because I think people are familiar with the the concept of artificial intelligence, right? And you see it in science fiction and pop culture a lot. Um, the research we're going to talk about today focuses on medical imaging in particular. So can you tell us a little bit about how you branched into this particular area of research? Yeah, so I, um, I did... Um so I did my PhD here at University of Alberta, and then I stayed a bit in traditional computer vision. Um, I did a postdoc in France, and then I came back, and I um, I was invited to participate uh, in meetings with a group uh, that was, uh, the main PI was Ras Greiner, so he's at the University of Alberta, and he works in medical imaging, and I I really liked the the field and also one of the physicians. So we worked with the radiation oncologist at that time. So he, I really liked the connection, this reality connection with reality. So I, I, I was very motivated by that. And also the feedback that we got from the, from the doctor. And then uh, I really liked that uh, collaboration and the fact that we were doing something that could potentially be useful and very real compared to uh, my previous work, which was very theoretical in a way. And even though it had applications, um, it was not so direct. Yeah, that's that that makes total sense of like wanting to do something with, you know, real practical uses. And so that's really interesting. When you made this connection and you started collaborating with these kind of um, like biomedical researchers, did you have to like learn um, like some anatomy? Did you have to take a crash course in, in learning how like, you know, structures of the brain, neuroscience, anything like that? Uh, not formally, but this doctor, he was telling us a lot in the meeting. So it was very useful to to have his constant feedback. So I had to learn a little bit of basic brain anatomy, um, a little bit of how structures work. And at that time, like I said, my first project was on brain tumors. So it was a, he was a radiation oncologist and I always learned a lot about that. Um, and he had his theories. So it was really nice. I think it was very nice how he would not understand the details of our methods but he was able to, we were able to find a space where we could actually discuss things. Um, so, yes, I learned from him and I think he learned from us. So. Was it challenging at all to, I mean, if your first project with medical imaging is looking at oncology and brain tumors, I mean, that's pretty heavy. Was it a challenge at all? Like, what was it like to to kind of be working in a field where you're actually looking at people's lives and like people's brains? Yeah, that was pretty tough, actually. And seeing those big tumors, you have to detach. I'd probably it's just the process that all the medical doctors go through. Yeah, but I mean, you they just have, have years and years <laughs> of experience. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's scary. It's just you don't have to think of it um, because obviously we had no names. So, um, yeah, you'd have to detach from the meaning of the images. Okay, so, yeah, you did the project oncology with radiologists. Um, but you've also collaborated with the biomedical engineering department at the U of A. Uh, how did you connect with them? And can you tell us a little bit about how your collaboration with them started and, and the projects it led to? So, uh, I, uh, I think they contacted me because they needed somebody to help with, so they are experts in, uh, imaging, but in acquisition. So and the, what's acquisition? Sorry. 
it's all the MRI. So they're physicists, most of the people at the BME, and they are experts in MRI and other types of images, like uh, they have other specialists. But the, the professor that I work with, uh, he's an expert in MRI. And uh, they don't have expertise in, in image analysis. And uh, yeah, that's, I think he contacted me and then I was hired as a research associate and I worked for him quite a lot. I forgot how many years. <laughs> uh, it was the time when I had my kids, so it was kind of on and off, but uh, for quite a few years until I came here. So um, probably about 10 years I worked for for the BME people. Wow, that's a that's a long-standing working relationship. Um, so for those of us at home that might not know the process of something like this, um, how does MRI work for those, again, who might not know? So there are different types of MRI. So like there is structured MRI, like uh, where you kind of see how the brain looks, but then there is diffusion MRI where you have a directional magnetic field that is going to take... Uh, several images. So that is if you heard about diffusion tensor images where they actually can visualize the brain fibers. So everything is uh, based on physics and magnetization. So they take continuous signals that then they discretize uh, into these digital images. Okay. I always wanted to go and get an MRI just to like see what's going on up there. Because sometimes I think I'm not all um, I don't know if there's actually anything going on up there. So I mean, I think maybe getting an MRI... Do they even do MRIs if you don't, like, need one? No. You can volunteer. I did twice. <laughs> oh, hey. That's yeah. really cool. So you got to, like, see your own uh, yes. brain? Mm -hmm. That's really neat. Was that part of your study on MRI imaging of the hippocampus? No, it was actually, I was in an MS study at that time. So they needed the healthy volunteers to be able to compare with the MS patients. So that was the MS study that I was part of. So you've seen your brain twice. <laughs> I mean, no, I think a lot of people, usually if you're getting shown an image of your brain, it might not be in the best of circumstances. So I think that that's really cool. So Dylan, go volunteer for a study. So yeah, can you tell us about your study on MRI imaging of the hippocampus, please? So the hippocampus, that was a bit later project. It was another faculty from BME that I started to work uh, more recently. Uh, so that is also, um, so they develop a special type of imaging that is a very high resolution image of the hippocampus. So it's not the full brain, it's just a, a part of the brain, but very high resolution. And it is a diffusion tensor. So it is a diffusion image, which is this directional image. And um, so hippocampus is a central part of the brain. So it's connected to many other parts. And uh, one of the faculty there, um, I don't know if I should say names or not. I, I don't know how is this thing going, but um, he's very interested in the study of hippocampus. And uh, yeah, so he asked us to study his images. And that was actually, I did it mostly at, after I came to McEwen, the, the project. So what were you looking at like they're taking the MRIs of the hippocampus help us understand like what your role in that project was were you developing a new kind of um, computer vision were you just teaching a computer to analyze the image like what so we had to do our main our first task was to segment the hippocampus so you have to isolate the the structure 
And uh, we had uh, several manual segmentations and we actually did, uh, that was um, one of the deep learning algorithms that we applied to be able to segment the hippocampus in a new image. Uh, so that was the first part of the project. And then the second part that we are actually doing now is uh, we want to study the shape of the hippocampus. So we want to study how the hippocampus is changing with aging. So all the brain, all our brain gets atrophy in time and uh, they want to be able to capture these changes as we age overall, uh, which is very important because then they can relate a person that has some symptoms or has a disease and see how his hippocampus is different from the normal person. Yeah. So, so in your study on the, like the first part of the study, um, I was looking at the research paper and I saw the word novel in there. So when I see the word novel, I think a new method. So did this project identify like a new method for imaging well, it's, it's, I guess, um, yeah, we can, it's an, it's a, it's an incremental work. So it's not something revolutionary, but we just did some modifications of, uh, one of the architectures that was published. Um, so there are like these deep networks are just some huge, uh, graphs basically that connect many, many nodes together. So this is called the architecture. And then we just did a few modifications to adapt it for our data. So the second part um, of the project you said is studying imaging on the aging brain. So can you tell us what, um, just about this project kind of, you know, what, what you're hoping to find or what you're hoping to study? Um, so we want to create a model of the aging brain. So it, you can think it's a bit like a function that given an age, it can give you like a, an average brain. So like you put in 34 years and then the model would come up of what an average 34 year old brain would look kind like? of, yeah. With some sort of statistical boundaries and, uh, it, in some it's referred sometimes as manifold learning. So basically we are trying to learn this space of uh, variability, brain variability. Okay. And when you say so, we, do you mean the researchers or you're trying to train a computer to, to well, learn that? Uh, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Everything involves a computer. Like the, we are thinking of how to, what algorithms to use and how to change them. But then eventually, obviously the computer is going to execute that. So you're training a computer to be able to know what the average brain at any age should look like. Yes, so kind of. Yeah, like what's next? What else is involved in this in this research? Well, uh, so yeah, so we want to create this uh, model of the aging hippocampus in our case, or it could be any structure of the brain. And then I think the the main purpose of this is just to study it, hippocampus has very large variation uh, between individuals. So it is a heterogeneous uh, structure and it's actually unknown uh, how exactly how, what change, what is the, the shape change with aging, except for atrophy. It, it is known that the volume goes down, but it does, they don't know the details of what parts of it change and how, if there is a pattern, maybe there is no pattern. 
So that's one thing that we have to actually study. And these deep networks are uh, highly nonlinear models uh, that are able to capture this variability with a low dimensional number, like, a, for example, 10 numbers that can encapsulate the whole, this variability, we call it a latent space. So um, after we create this model, we can then look at, um, create, then we can then investigate uh, how a shape is different in a disease population. So they have uh, similar images with uh, ADHD, I think, and Alzheimer's disease and other type of neurological disease. So that's one of the main uh, goals after that you are able to, to relate um, an individual or a population to this model of the healthy brain. Would that like essentially allow the software or the computer to like predict or identify? Like, could you plug in a bunch of, of data and then it could like flag individuals per se? Like, yes, that would be one use, but also for, for learning. So, because the doctors don't know exactly what's different. You look at the brain and they, I mean, some they have experience and they kind of see a little bit and, uh, but uh, in many cases, you can see those changes. So, um, like not with a human eye. No. Okay. So, if you you create the software and it can actually see things that, like a human could not see. So, mm-hmm. like tiny changes in the shape or volume. Mm-hmm. Okay. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's also, it's also for research purposes, I guess, not necessarily. And eventually maybe it leads to other things, but uh, it's also kind of a discovery type of research. You could use it for like, this is mostly diagnosis type of, of imagery that, that they're trying pr- to produce for, you know, to try and figure out what's, what's happening in the mm. in their brain. And I, I mean, this could lead to, to, to more, um, more things for um, diagnosis, like the diagnosis as well as the like uh, treatment options, I guess, moving forward. Yes, probably understanding the disease. I mean, many of those diseases, MS is, is still not very well understood and um, many other diseases are not very well understood. So I think it leads to both understanding the disease a bit more and then maybe how to treat it or early diagnosis or other things. Uh, yeah, I mean, something that... I like I said though like uh I want to go get an MRI because I just like you know I want to see what's going on up there but what if that was part of like a you know a regular regular thing if it was more accessible for for people and it, we could diagnose these things a lot sooner than oh it actually just well, there's a breaking point and now it might be too late for treatment so but this is really cool work that I think will help um help that yeah, I hope. And it's very beautiful. Like it's a lot of mathematics involved and uh, I love it also from a theoretical point of view. So I love that. Yeah. Uh, maybe we will take a short break here. Here, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back. If you've been following us on Instagram or seen us around campus, you might have noticed that Dylan and I like coffee a lot. Um, So luckily for us, there's a great coffee shop just a stone's throw away from our studio. Bean Around the World has everything you need. Great coffee, sweet and savory snack options and chill vibes. They even have an indoor swing set so you can connect with your inner child as you wait to caffeinate. 
Plus, they're a coffee shop for the people, offering a 10% discount with student ID. If you're interested, and you should be, they're located just a block north of Allard Hall in downtown Edmonton. And you can also find them on Instagram at B-A-T-W underscore Edmonton. Check them out. Welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. Dana, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, we talked a little bit about your work in medical imaging, and you mentioned earlier that you think it's important to develop automatic methods for analyzing and interpreting medical images. Why? And can you help us explain a little bit more about that? Okay, so I think it's important. Uh, so I actually work, I can give you an example. I also work with the radiation oncology, uh, sorry, radiation, just radiologists from from the U of A hospital that specializes in hip dysplasia, which is uh, the disease that you identify in small babies. So he's actually, he has very visionary uh, ideas and um, his vision is to try to bring uh, expertise to remote communities, for example. So you have these babies that are in a place that maybe doesn't even have an ultrasound machine. Uh, or has an ultrasound machine but doesn't have exp uh, experts to actually run it. And then they have to fly to Edmonton to test their baby. So um, the help with of these imaging technologies would be to actually be able to both guide uh, people that are not experts to, to do an ultrasound and also to interpret it, to give uh, like um, initial diagnosis and then maybe trim out some of the people that would not need to take the trip to Edmonton or uh, the opposite, they would identify cases that maybe needs to be treated and they have to come for treatment. So I, I think it's, it's, most, it's helping doctors to uh, both uh, to interpret images and um, to, to use them for diagnosis and guide them in both their uh, diagnosis and treatment. So in a situation like this, um, I'm just trying to understand when you say help with diagnosis, do you mean that like, say in a remote community, someone could take a picture of the baby and then a computer could interpret that image and flag if there was something off? Like I'm just trying yeah, to, trying so they to would take an ultrasound and so one uh, one main one first problem is that if they don't have people that are fully qualified to take this ultrasound in a very expert way, you could guide them. Like I need like the computer could guide them. Yeah. Like how would it? Yeah. Oh, it's just to... because they can analyze the image that is taken up to that point and say, okay, you have to take another image a bit more to this side or okay, something so like that. Okay. So the computer could say like wrong. Try again. Yes, exactly. Okay. Or just like do operation. It. <laughs> like it buzzes and it tells yeah, you. Yeah, something to guide the, um, I guess it could be a nurse or I don't know, somebody that is not necessarily a radiologist. Obviously, they okay. are uh, expensive specialists now so, um, and not accessible everywhere. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. And then like, what's the, what's the second part of that? So like the, the second part would be the diagnosis. So um, that's why we do this uh, we do these methods that are able to um, to diagnose or classify. We call them classifiers. So basically, uh, based on data that is annotated by experts, uh, you can learn how a healthy versus disease image looks like. 
And then you're able to do this in an automatic way with a certain confidence level that um, then you can uh, you can give a flag, you know, if somebody okay. potentially has this disease. So um, now that I understand that, I mean, that's really amazing. Like that technology to be able to give kind of more access to medical information. And especially, mm -hmm. I mean, in early life is incredible. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is actually. So he, uh, yes, the, the radiologist that uh, I worked with, he is developing those methods. I mean, with his team. Yeah. And I mean, already with the project that you've done on like the aging brain and the hippocampus, is this a technology that if it's successfully developed there could be applicable to like a wide variety of, of medical imaging? Yes. Yeah. So th all those methods that we develop are, uh, they could be applied to any kind of structure. Obviously we do, the brain has certain characteristics because it has a bit less variability than the other parts of our body. What does that mean when you say the brain has less variability? Oh, it means that just because it's encapsulated in our heads, no, they look more similar. Okay, okay. So there's Whereas, less variation between yes, exactly. persons. So like people's hands might look very different. Or, or have... especially the inside of our body looks uh, <laughs> much more different. Really? That's oh, that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah, I would have thought it would be like the outside stuff that looks I guess a lot it depends different. how much you'd like jump on trampolines as a kid, how much it moves stuff around. <laughs> yeah. How much muscle you have, how much fat, how much... I, yeah, because I work with another project with a lady also from oncology that was interested in the abdominal images. She wanted to measure actually the ratio between muscle and fat. Okay. And then I noticed how much variability we have on the inside. Uh, but the brain is, I mean, if you look at the brain, it looks kind of the same. No? So it's a bit less variability. You notice atrophy and obviously some lesions like the MS, if people have lesions, obviously you notice that, but otherwise it's kind of looks the same. So w when we, we talk about computer vision, then if the brain has less variability, is it then easier to apply these algorithms and get a more accurate result? It, it is a bit easier. Yes, because you can capture it in uh, a bit less uh, numbers, you can say, so you can um, create a model that, um, has uh, less parameters. Okay. Um, well, thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, moving on, there is another project I wanted to talk about. It's called the Shape Project, um, and it's about faces. So can you tell us about that project? Yeah, so that's a very interesting project. So the project is um, uh, on shapes, which shapes are, uh, if you think, uh, they are kind of... Uh, the skeleton, the outside of a shape. So, uh, for example, the shapes can be interpreted as meshes or represented as meshes. So basically... And is a shape different from, like, isn't a shape like a square or a triangle mm -hmm. or a circle? Okay. Yes, but it's different than an image. You no, know? An image is an, an array of pixels. It has, uh, uh, like, a two- or three-dimensional uh, square... Um, that every every pixel has a value, whereas a shape uh, is represented by some 3D location of points. It's like a graph. 
Okay. So basically you represent, uh, it's a bit like in graphical models, you probably have seen those meshes where you, yeah. or you, when you work with any kind of blender or any kind of modeler, you see the shape without being rendered with texture. And so that's basically what, how we represent shapes. I mean, there is a mathematical theory of shapes, but uh, practically that's how at least I, I work with them as meshes. Yeah, which so, I think people might know, like if you've ever seen a movie where they're like, making something on a computer mm -hmm. screen and it's it's yeah it looks like a mesh that like shapes into mm -hmm. things okay so the yeah. project is on shapes um and what is the project about uh, so it's just a our project is again about representing those shapes and trying to understand uh the low dimensional space that uh, of a certain type of shapes and uh, so it is it is exactly like working with images, except you have a bit of a different structure now because you have this graph structure where uh, every point has some neighbors, but they are not necessarily arranged in a grid. Uh, so um, we had to apply all the original algorithms that were developed for images to these more irregular uh, structures, which were graphs. And uh, our so we. The project that um, we work again on the hippocampus project, that's our kind of main motivation. But I, uh, I had a student that did a side project that was very successful on analyzing faces. Okay. So. Um, Which must be very difficult. Uh, yes, it sounds very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> so uh, we work with a database, a public database of faces. So basically just... Um, scans of people that were converted to those meshes and they had various expressions. So they were, I think there were 12 people and 12 expressions like smile or I don't know, all kinds of expressions with a face. And then what we were looking at, we were looking at uh, trying to represent this space of shapes uh, and relate to those basic parameters that are the 12 expressions. Uh, okay. So, so, yeah. So how, um, if we can actually identify these directions of variability in our encoding. So I guess trying to understand that. So were you trying to see if you could have a program actually know if someone had a particular expression or feeling? Yes, so that was one goal. Like this is called classification. So basically, having a uh, a face mesh, if you can say, if it's an expression. But on the other hand, what's the big power of those uh, methods that are called the autoencoders is that um, you can also generate new faces that never existed. So you probably, all of you probably know about all these applications where you can generate people that don't exist. Like you can make them talk. And yeah, stuff? exactly. Okay. So that's what we actually, he, my student was able to do that. And I was actually really impressed by his uh, results. So we were able to detangle those uh, dimensions, the 12 expressions, and then be able to generate uh, new faces with a particular expression. I have to go back. What is deep fakes? Uh, well, I'm not an expert on deep fakes, but it is something that comes a lot um, up a lot in communication studies because obviously journalism accuracy, like knowing what is real and what is not. Um, so deep fakes are kind of like you can create a 
basically like almost facsimile of a person, but it's not real. Like you could create like a video of President Obama making a speech through, I don't know if it's different technologies or if you're taking different clips and like blending them together, but they're called deep fakes because I mean, a lot of them are almost seamless. Okay. So it's basically people have found a way. Do you like, can you help us explain what a deep (laughs) fake is Um, from, I guess the mathematical like computer vision point of, of view? Yeah, so it is. It is exactly this. So is this uh, what they are called either variational autoencoder or uh, GANs? They are generative adversarial networks, and those models are able to uh, represent. Um, so you have a lot of training data. Yeah, people that um, you take. I mean, most of them are done on images or video, but I guess we adapt it for this other type of data. So you train with this uh, huge amount of data. And then the model is able to learn how a person is supposed to talk, say something, smile, or, and then they also can create totally new people that That don't don't exist. That's so scary. (laughs) There is a website, it's called This This Person Doesn't Exist, and you can just refresh it and it just gives you a new person, but those people don't exist. They are just uh, computer generated. So we have these huge networks that, uh, the deep networks that, they learn from data. So if you give them enough samples uh, of how people are supposed to look like, they are able to create new people. They will be, people think they will be able to create music, literature, books. Uh, like all AI. This sounds yeah. a lot like Skynet and I'm scared. <laughs> like I'm, I'm genuinely worried. This person does not exist. I have this loaded on my yeah, screen. Yeah, right looking now. at it right Just keep refreshing. These pictures are so like real well that's crazy to me because like you can't even get like decent cgi in a movie but we can fully create people and deep fakes and we need to apply this technology to the cinema immediately (laughs) well well, they've done certain cgis i suppose in movies going on a tangent a little bit um and i was i was at coachella the year that tupac performed Oh, the hologram. The Tupac hologram. And I tell you, I was probably 30 feet away from the stage, and it was so convincing. Somebody next to me um, was like, hey, man, I heard that's Tupac's cousin. Like, <laughs> they, everyone was co- totally convinced that, you know, this was a real person um, performing on stage. And that's live. That's not on a digital screen. That's not anything. That's that's in front of my face. That's an illusion. <laughs> But so with this, anyways, yeah, with, but with this shape, um, like program, would you call it programming or software? Method, that, method, or I don't. Yeah, know. a method, method with this shape method. Would you be able to create a three dimensional face? Face yes. just floating in the air. Okay, holograms coming soon to McEwen. <laughs> Research recasted holograms. So <laughs> yeah, so what's next for for the shape project? Um, like, are there any plans? Is it still in progress? Any plans for the future? Um, any applications maybe? Yeah, so we want to apply it for the hippocampus data now. So we and any other brain structures. So the the BME professors are very interested in this. Um, and, um, yeah, so we, we'll see what we'll discover. So we want to see, um, to again, characterize this variability of hippocampus, uh, with age mainly, but then other parameters might be discovered. What uh, would integrating this method with your, um, 
like work on the hippocampus and the brain, like how would it work? How would you use the shape method in that context? Um, I think it's not very different. So we will still use uh, the variational autoencoder. It's just that we have to, we call it conditioning by age. So we have to kind of make, uh, introduce this new variable into the system. So whereas the faces, um, they had the expressions, which are discrete uh, in a way <laughs> variables. Mm-hmm. Whereas age is something continuous. So I think that's the only difference. So, but it's really, from a mathematical point of view, it's not very difficult to do this conditioning. So um, it's just that a lot of other um, works need to be done for pre-processing the data. So, um, yeah, we have a bit of work in uh, pre-processing these hippocampus shapes and isolate them from images, make them into meshes and... Um, getting them ready for this uh, algorithm. Well, that's really interesting. So thanks for sharing that. And we're going to go to another quick break and then we'll be back to talk about some segmentation. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of Research Recast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back to uh, finalize this wonderful conversation and uh, we'll see you then. In case you didn't know, February 11th is the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So if you are a woman or a girl who's interested in STEM or you know a woman or a girl who is interested in being interested in STEM, uh, we're going to drop a couple links in our episode description. Follow up with those to check out some programs across the country and find local events in the community and get STEMed. We're going to talk about the MS Segmentation Challenge. And if you don't know what that is, join the club. Dan is going to tell us all about it. Um, take it away. Yeah, so we participated. I had two students that from McEwen that participated in uh, this MS Segmentation Challenge. So it is was part of the MIKAI conference. MIKAI is the main medical imaging conference. Uh, obviously, everything was virtual at uh, this year, but the conference was uh, in Strasbourg. Um, so the team that organized the conference, was, the the challenge, is from uh, from a research institute in Rennes. Okay, so this is an international challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And do they do it like? Is it an annual thing, or is it a one time? Uh, every year there are uh, quite a lot of challenges. So the way they work is that they uh, put together a data set. Uh, in this case was brain scans of MS people and it was it's very well uh, um, annotated by medical experts. Uh, I forgot, I think there were two medical experts that did the annotation for these uh, lesions. So the goal of this challenge was to detect new lesions. So it was actually a temporal sequence. So scans of the same person at several times. I think we just had two times this time. But anyway, so we were, uh, the task was to identify new lesions that were not present at time one, but were present at time two. Okay. So So that would be kind of similar to um, some of the research we talked about earlier, where like, you can't just look at the scans and one of your students could be like, oh, there, like that wasn't there last time. So is it kind of trying to, 
teach um, a machine or a computer to identify something that we couldn't see, like with our eyes? Uh Sometimes, I guess, you can see it. It's just trying to automate the system. Okay, so it's trying to automate. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so we participated. Um, so we had uh, a time where we could train our method. So we use a very similar method to the hippocampus segmentation. Um, and, um, yeah, so we had a time to... We got the data, we trained our method, and then we had... Um, a limited test data set that we could test our results. But then the at the time of the challenge, a completely new data set was given for testing. Okay, so you got some data, you were allowed to train your method. And when you say train your method, do you mean like create a program? Yes, we first created a program and then training means uh, learning. So basically it's this process of training your network. So you... Uh, you have to get the values for all the parameters of your method. Okay, and then you teach it to be able to do that automatically. Okay, yeah. so how many students? Two students. So it was you and two students. Yes. Okay. So tell us, like, about the experience. How did it go? Oh, it was. Um, they were really excited. The students are always excited with this kind of things, competition challenges, and so they were very motivated to participate. And did they have to, sorry to cut you off, did they have to like audition? Did you choose the students by hand? Did they apply? Oh, no, I, I was working with them already. So okay. I just told them about the challenge and then they were kind of excited and wanted to do it. Okay. So, um, Bunch yeah. of keeners. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and then, um, so then at the competition day, it was kind of nice that they obviously, because it was organized in Europe, we had to wake up at 5 a.m. to watch the oh, competition. Yeah. <laughs> and we even requested this time because we had to. So it was afternoon time for them. So um, and then, uh, yeah, so we were watching all the results live. And um, I was very surprised they did very well. So we didn't win the competition. But because, um, yeah, it's a lot of but fam you still famous did quite team. Well. We did quite well. So we were the first Canadian team. Um, so we, first of all, we, we ended up kind of in the, probably the first half, uh, but, uh, we were the first among the Canadian teams. So and I'm, there were four? I can't recall exactly about four Canadian teams, I think. Okay. From and across the country. Yeah. And big universities. So I was really proud of, uh, our team yeah. from such a small university, um, that, um, they made it, um, Yeah. That's so, big news. That's, yeah, that's really McEwen. great. <laughs> yeah, you're doing all of this research. You're also teaching quite a few courses here at McEwen. So how do you balance all of those responsibilities? And how do your roles as a researcher and a teacher interact? Uh, balancing is hard. Uh, I just take it day by day. <laughs> I'm surviving. <Me> too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I told my friend once the semester starts, I just feel like I'm in a roller coaster. I go in one end and then in December I wake up in the other end. <laughs> so that's kind of how it feels. Uh, and unfortunately, I can't do so much during the term. Uh, but I pick up in the spring and summer and just because it's so exciting for me, I'm I'm always get excited with the research. I normally start reviewing the literature, uh, getting up to date with what was happening in the last year, then getting in touch with my collaborators and students and trying to get some things starting 
for the spring and summer month. Yes. You know, I think that might be a common misconception among among the general population at the universities where you know, our professors just have the summer off and they, mm. they just like get to enjoy their vacation. <laughs> yeah, and they're stuff on a like three that. month vacation. But <laughs> in, in reality, a lot of our professors are, are doing a lot of scholarly activity uh, during that time. Um, and yeah. You, yourself included. That's when, when you get to have the time to do those really important research tasks. Yeah, because you need the peace of mind and uh, you need the continuity. You can just research is not something that I wake up in the morning and I say, okay, I'm going to do research today. <laughs> yeah. So you need to read, you need to get into the, it's usually a much higher level than your courses and uh, find the right students and then try to have a schedule for them, try to think of projects and all that stuff. So it's definitely something that, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to do it, I think. I uh, mean, I think what you need to do is create a program <laughs> to do research on his own. Do you think that that like, is a possibility in the future, that there will be fully like artificial, intelligent, like AI researchers? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there probably is. Yeah, um, I don't know. But at the, this university, do you mean... I think all these programs are, you can, they can learn, but the thing is that who creates the algorithm? So I don't know if they, maybe who knows uh, um, if in the future they will just create themselves. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's like the science fiction thing, right? Is that the computer just starts teaching itself and then it's learning and then humans are doomed. But I'm just wondering, um, yeah, could you, if you could teach a computer to teach itself? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> or I mean, if that's it's, a good uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. I always like when I talk with these medical doctors, they don't like the when people say that, oh, the AI is going to replace the doctors and because it's not true. So mm -hmm. it's just a helping tool. So um, you could never, probably never replace a, a medical doctor, um, but you, you can help them. So it's probably the same in any field. Hopefully we don't, we will still need People that can create music or art or otherwise. Even though uh, you can, you do have AI that creates <laughs> well, music. You know, we did talk a little bit about this with uh, one of our past guests, Robert Andruco and Isabel Sperano in user experience design. So taking these these uh, programs that, um, you know, computer science has created and, and things like that. And then... Um, we talked about the the dilemma of having cashiers and uh, self-checkouts. It's like, well, it might eliminate the cashier's job, but it's actually created 10 other jobs that's programming these machines to do these things. Um, so I think it's very, very relatable. And um, I think user experience design can work in your work as well, making sure that the interface that the doctors are using is easy to use mm -hmm. and um, helpful to, to, to them as well. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that that is all of the questions that we had for you. But at the end, we do like to leave the floor open to our guests. So, um, yeah, do you have any maybe advice for researchers or students that are interested in working in medical imaging and computer science? Or do you want to give any shout outs? Do you have an idea for a new project that you want to talk about? Um, this is basically the space for you to... Leave us with some last <laughs> information what, what, yeah, and knowledge. Like. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to say. I guess uh, 
for the students, I they should not uh, bypass the math courses. So that's one thing, one one main advice that I give them. I I think it's a mistake to not take enough math courses. It's just something that is so established that um, they everybody should know a little bit. Well, you and were then, saying in Romania that actually computer science and mathematics, when you were going to school, hand in hand, were together. Like you couldn't separate them. Well, not at the beginning. Yes, that's true. But now I guess things are different there also. So, so a student uh, could theoretically go into computer science and not take all the math? No. Yeah. Uh, I think, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not. Probably would be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> But not so advanced math. So I did a lot of math that um, I always find useful. So um, so do the math. Mm-hmm. Well, That's in, in one my, in my world, we uh, in audio and stuff, in the physics of sound, we work on like logarithmic scales. And um, I might actually have to upgrade my math to take a course that I'm in next semester called um, acoustics. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the, the uh, algorithms that we use to measure the speed of sound and... Um, you know, the, the rate that sound decays and things like that. So we'll see if I, (laughs) see if I, if I have to upgrade or not. Yeah. And then I don't know, don't be afraid of research. Research is, it is really amazing. It's very catchy. And, uh, I'm actually really glad uh, a lot of my summer interns, they are now, they applied or they will apply for grad school at the, mostly at the U of A. But I had quite a few that are already in the program. So um, I think it's really nice. I mean, it's not, I mean, I agree that, um, of course, finding a job is eventually the the goal for every young person. But um, yeah, research is also something that is, um, you can take a little break if you feel that call. So it's, it's very nice, I think. I think so too. And, and after... You know, I've now spoken with so many researchers. It's really like having a body of research and having a thing that you kind of explore all the facets of is really interesting and nice. I feel like if I had something like that, it would give me great purpose. And like many of these projects are jumping off points. So really, if you can find that one project and spark that passion, like you may oh, it's have lead to a, a career, of, yeah. yeah, a lifetime of <laughs> of learning and researching and creating software that changes people's lives. So it's really, really interesting. Anything else? Uh, no, not that I can think of. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'll, I'll just, yeah, let's do it. Well, it's time to pull the plug on today's episode of Research Recasted. If you enjoyed the conversation and you'd like to learn more about Dana and her research, please follow the links in the episode description. You can support this podcast by visiting Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platforms to catch new episodes every two weeks. If anything in this episode did not compute, please shoot a question on Instagram at Research Recasted. Don't forget to give us a like and follow there too. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. 
Research Recasted is hosted and produced by me, Dylan Cave, and Brittany Eklund. That's me. Music, sound design, and editing by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producers are Jason Malenko and Ray Barry. 